Let me pray for us as we open our Bibles this morning. Father, from this passage, I I am just increasingly aware of uh, my own inadequacy to to minister, to to change hearts, um, to bring about life change in people. Uh, But I am am also more and more aware of, of the adequacy of Christ to do that work and as, as we see in this passage, the, the futility of our own efforts versus the, the great efficacy of relying on what Christ has done, on Christ's command. So as we approach this passage this morning, I, I just want to, Father, ask you uh, to move through the words that I speak, through your word being explained. And Father, I pray for the hearts of those who are hearing uh, that you would enable them to, to understand uh, those who have your spirit inside of them to, to comprehend the things that you have for us today. And Father, if there are some in my hearing who, who do not know you, who do not know about Jesus, uh, that they might be convicted by the words that are said today and that they might hear clearly for the very first time. So many things in this passage, in the passages over the last few weeks, speak about seeing believing. And Father, we ask that you would do that for us today as well. And we pray in Jesus. Amen. All right, so we have reached chapter 21. Chapter 21 is John's epilogue. So John has a very clearly defined prologue in chapter 1, 1 through 14, very famous. Um, Look at, uh, if if you're in John 21, look just above it at the end of verse of chapter 20, and we'll pick this up in two weeks, so we're going to conclude with that, but listen, listen to these words. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in them, you may have life in his name. So that would be a very fitting ending to the book. That, that could be all, uh, but that's not all that John has to say, and so we have this epilogue here. So I, I want to start this morning by just asking the question briefly, why do we have this epilogue? Why, why does it seem as though John finished his gospel and then said, oh yeah, I've got one more thing? Well, I think there's several reasons. Uh, first of all, it gives us one more, a third uh, view of Jesus after the resurrection. So one more statement about the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and we see some things related to that bodily resurrection here. I think there's uh, evidence here of Jesus continuing to care for his disciples. I think we see that in this episode on the beach. Uh, We probably won't get here until our last week, but it does seem like that John intends to clear up a little rumor uh, about about his own uh, death, and we'll see that in a couple of weeks where it, it seems that because uh, he says to Peter, you know, don't worry about him. If I decide for him to, to live until I come back, you know, so be it. And, and so he's clearing up a rumor there that, that some had said that he would never die. But probably the most important reason why John includes this last chapter is to explain how the Peter of John 18, who denied Jesus and, and cursed, called down curses, becomes the Peter of Acts chapter 2 who is bold and preaches the gospel, and many people get saved. So since the resurrection, we've seen Peter uh, running to the tomb with John. He, John looks into the tomb and believes. 
Uh, but Peter, we don't really find out what has happened with Peter at that point. And then we know that Peter was in the locked room on both occasions at the end of chapter 20. So both times when Jesus appeared in the room, uh, Peter was there, and we aren't told anything about his reaction. So if, if old Apostle John was sitting around telling this story, and there were a bunch of kids around him, Uncle John, but what about Peter? What happened to Peter? And so John is going to fill in the gaps. And we'll, we'll start today with the, with the work that, that, we're, that, that Jesus does on the beach, and then next week we'll finish it out with the full restoration of Peter. This is a, a simple and straightforward account that we have before us. It's the third encounter with Jesus. Now, there has been some tendency, and I, I'll try to explain this to you as we go along, there's been some tendency in church history to see a lot of deeper meaning in this passage, okay? So it's a very straightforward passage, but it has some details, and so a lot of people want to make it very metaphorical. I'm kind of on the fence, okay? So, all right, so sometimes I'm, I'm going to kind of, you know, this may be a little bit too much inside baseball for y'all, but just for a second, there are some people who want to spiritualize texts, okay? And by spiritualizing text, I mean that they want to take a clear, simple text and give it a deeper spiritual meaning, all right? And I could give you a lot of examples, but for instance, you know, kind of one of the more famous silly ones is, you know, um, well, you see in the tabernacle, they were these nails, and the nails represent in the tabernacle the nails that went into our Messiah's feet and hands. And we would say, no, sometimes the nails are just there because they needed to hold up the curtains. That's just the only reason they're there. There's, there's no reason to read a deeper meaning into that. The nails are there, and they serve a purpose, and God is saying, you know, nail up the curtains, all right? Um, I, I don't think that we should spend a lot of time finding deeper meanings in text. However, in the history of the church, there's been a lot of good, wise commentators who have seen uh, a spiritual meaning in this text. So here's what I'm going to do. Uh, if we, if we, we want to take this text for exactly what it says. So, so first of all, this morning, I'm just going to walk through the text, and I'm going to explain the text to you. And then secondly, I'm going to lay out a common uh, historical meaning. You'll see what I mean when I get there. And, it, and, and it'll either be for your edification or not. But I'm going to throw it out there, and, and we'll, we'll kind of decide together where we think, whether we think there's anything to it, all right? All right, let me read uh, chapter 21 with all of that introduction, verses 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. 
The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. All right, so I've arranged arranged this passage this morning just for the sake of organization. I've got six words for you, all right? So the first word is manifestation, manifestation. Verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. All right, so I hope you're not surprised if I say, and I'm including myself in this statement, that we sometimes don't pay attention to the words of Jesus, all right? I hope that's not offensive to you. I hope that most of you are like, yep, that sounds about right. In this case, Jesus had given the disciples explicit instructions, and I always like to make a lot about the fact that he had said he was going to raise from the dead after three days, and none of the disciples bothered to just go to the tomb on Sunday morning and just check it out. Like, he said it, you would think that maybe somebody would have gone to look. Well, he also gave some instructions. So he said, I'm going to raise from the dead after three days and then do this. So let me, let me show you the instructions. Maybe you've never noticed them yourself. And, and by the way, this should teach our hearts we don't often, we often don't pay attention to what Jesus has told us. So this is from Mark 14, 27 through 28. So this is before uh, the crucifixion. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Hmm. Like they didn't even get the raised up part. They certainly didn't follow through to the Galilee part, right? And then when the angel is sitting at the tomb and the women come to the tomb in Mark 16, 7, listen to what he says. He says, this is the words of the angel, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. All right, so what we see here is that the disciples have been given instructions. When I rise from the dead, I will see you in Galilee. And then the angels had said, when he, he's arisen from the dead, he will see you in Galilee. What did the disciples do? Where are they on the night of the resurrection? They are in Jerusalem, locked in a room for fear of the Jews. Where did we find them eight days later when they were gathered with Thomas? They were still locked in a room for fear of the Jews. Brothers and sisters, they've either refused to obey or they're sitting around in ignorance and fear. And I, and I want to say to you, this is not an excuse for sin, all right? We should obey. But Jesus is very, very patient with them and with us. How many of his commands do we regularly, conveniently, ignore, or worse, deliberately disobey? 
How often do we let fear lead us to refuse to do what God has so clearly told us to do? I I would bet that the scriptures are full of commands that we regularly just refuse to consider, to listen to, and obey. And we suffer for it. The disciples were not better off having spent eight days locked in a room for fear of the Jews before they finally did what Jesus told them to do. And it's so interesting to me, too, that he comes and appears to them twice in the meantime. Well, finally, at the beginning of John 21, they have obeyed. They've traveled back to Galilee, and they're waiting for Jesus at the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. Now, I said that uh, the, the word here that's important is manifestation. Let me explain that. Twice in this passage, and then once down in verse 13, the ESV translate that Jesus revealed himself. This is the, 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 the third time when Jesus revealed himself, is what it says down in verse 14. The, the, the New American Standard Bible, uh, which I'm, I'm somewhat stubbornly still committed to, uh, actually has the word manifested here. He, this is, he has manifested himself. So this is the third time that Jesus has presented himself has manifested himself after his resurrection. So John is simply saying, hey, this was another example of a time when we saw him alive. In Acts 1-3, Luke says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Jesus, we know, was on earth for 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, I think we sometimes maybe wrongly think that they were just like together with him all the time. Clearly they weren't. Clearly over the course of these two weeks, by the time they finally made it up to Galilee, they've only seen him now this is the third time. What else was he doing? I don't know. Where was he? It'll be exciting to find out. He's probably doing something. He hadn't ascended yet. The main point from verse 1 as it pertains to John's epilogue that we want to remember is that this is the third time that John has seen Jesus post-resurrection. They saw him, they touched him, they ate with him, they heard him speak. Again, he'll, he'll eat with them on the beach. I'm getting ahead of myself here, but again, the food didn't go in his mouth and just go straight through and drop on the floor. It went into his body. I don't understand how the resurrected digestive system will work. We'll find out one day. But he was a real person, and he was really alive. He ate real food. He, he, he could be touched, all right? Okay, second word, frustration, verses 2 and 3. Frustration. I've worked really hard at, this, um, at these words all sounding similar. So, frustration. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So this is a really interesting list of the disciples. Maybe you've never looked that closely at the list of the disciples, but they're usually grouped in the same groups of three. You normally see Peter and James and John grouped together. This is the only time where you have Peter and Thomas put together at the beginning of the list. Uh, It's notable uh, only because it's unusual, all right? So on the one hand, it could be that John is trying to say, hey, look, on the beach that day, you've got the doubter and the denier, you know? 
Maybe John is just trying to sort of highlight that for us. Or maybe Thomas was just like, I'm not missing another gathering, right? Like, I missed the first one. Jesus came. I'm not missing another one. Peter, James, and John, wherever you are, I'm going to be there, all right? One way or the other, Thomas is here. He's with Peter. Are you at all familiar with the phrase, wait on the Lord? You should be. The disciples are literally waiting on the Lord, all right? So they have finally come to Galilee, they finally obeyed, and they must wait. Waiting is the worst, don't you think? I remember, like, my dad would, like, sometimes be the one who was going to pick me up from school. And this was before, you know, cell phone. You know, he would get hung up, and it was, like, 4.30. I'm just waiting, you know? And there was no way to let me know that he wasn't coming until 45 minutes, you know? And it, it's like, you know, you, I mean, you've probably been, you probably remember, I mean, just the, like, those kids who just are still waiting for somebody to come and pick them up after school and you're just standing there and it's savannah and it's hot and you want to go home and you're just waiting what are you going to do and 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 what what happens when you're waiting you end up being up to no good half the time right there's a great account of waiting in genesis chapter 15 it's it always strikes me so the genesis 15 is one of the big uh covenant passages with abram Uh, And it's the one where God appears to Abram and he says, uh, I want you to take animals. Well, I wrote it here. A heifer, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And I want you to cut them all in half and lay them out next to each other with a path in between them. All right? Okay. So, So Abraham does that. And then it says this. And the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. So Abram cuts these animals in half. And then he has to wait. Like, how weird is that? Like, he's, he's standing there with these mutilated animals, and he's shooing vultures away. And he's probably like, why am I doing this? Like, this is so weird. Lord, I'm just sitting here. Aren't, aren't you going to do something? And the next verse says, finally at sundown, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and God begins to... You know, it's often very hard to obey, right? I mean, Cutting those animals in half probably seemed a little silly, but he did it. Okay, I did it. Lord, I went to Galilee. Lord, I did the thing that you have had on my heart to do. And sometimes I think that we, we think that once I finally obey, that there's just going to be this sort of supernatural sense of like blessing and fullness and joy, and we're just going to be swept up in the clouds, and it's, it's all going to be great. Sometimes there is. I've had those moments of like finally doing something that the Lord was, was I could tell, asking me to do, and like the sense of like, yeah. But there's been other times that I've obeyed God, and there's been stillness, and there's been quiet, and I've been like, Lord, where are you? I just did this thing. I was expecting you to come crashing into the situation, and sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't. Erica and I have had this verse coming at us from all angles lately. Psalm 24, 14 says, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Because you see, the Lord always moves on his perfect time, but we're not often excited about his time because we don't like to wait. Go back to to Abram again. He had believed God. He had moved to an entirely different country with his extended family, but he had to wait decades on God to finally give him that promised son. If you're a Christian this morning, you're probably here. You're probably waiting for something. Because to me, that seems to be the Christian experience. Maybe you're waiting to overcome some lifelong temptation that you thought, frankly, by this point in your life, 
Maybe that would be gone, but God hasn't taken it away from you. Maybe you're looking for relief from some kind of suffering, be it emotional, physical, relational. And you're, you're praying. Maybe you're waiting for a loved one to follow Jesus. Maybe you're waiting for an answer to some prayer. I know we talked a lot in the fall from uh, John 14, 15, and 16 about Jesus' promise where he says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And I got to tell you, I've got a short list of prayers right now that I'm like, Lord, I believe this is in your name. I believe this would bring glory to you. I feel pretty confident that this qualifies as in your name, but he hasn't answered yet. And so I wait. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Well, Peter gets tired of waiting, as Peter tends to do. And so he decides to go fishing. And so he says, I'm going fishing. And the other six of them are like, we're going with you. And I do think there's, there's something here about Peter's leadership. He's obviously just a guy that everybody else sort of followed. Um, I'm going fishing. Okay, we'll come. This is a place where I've been very tempted all week to make this text say something that I've just decided it doesn't say. I, I want so bad to preach that Peter is running back to his life as a fisherman. I just, that preaches. The problem is we aren't told that. We don't know. We don't know what's going on here. Again, we can ask him when we get to heaven. There are several good reasons that Peter may be fishing. I mean, he may just be bored and, you know, idle hands cause problems. So he's like, I got to do something. I'm going fishing. Maybe they need to eat. Maybe they're hungry. Maybe they need a little money. Maybe he really is just going back to what's comfortable. It's not clear. It could be any one of those things or something else or all of them. What we know is that waiting is hard and Peter decides to go fishing and the other six disciples go with him and then they are frustrated because they don't catch anything. If he was going back to his old life, that fails too, miserably. Now, I'm not a a fisherman myself. I'm not really an outdoors guy. I'm more of a hotel guy than a tent guy. You know, I don't really want to kill anything. It's not my thing. So I I talked to a fisherman this week. Um, You know, like, I think for most of us, like, I fully expect if I ever go out and throw a a line in the water, like, there's a good chance I'm not catching anything. Like, I'm aware of that. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I end up with a lot of, like, logs and and things stuck at the end. I've kind of abandoned it altogether, frankly. I I don't really do that, much to my my boy's dismay. Um, So I, I hear this, and I think, okay, fine, they didn't catch anything. That sounds about right to me. But these guys weren't casual fishermen. They were professionals, and they knew this lake like the back of their hand. And they they didn't go out and just not catch fish. They might not catch many fish, but they didn't go out and not catch any fish. And I kind of wonder, was Jesus, you know, they don't see him until the morning. Was Jesus, you know, out there on the shore all night long, just sort of like, you know, they would throw the net over here and he would just go, you know, and all the fish would move to that side of the boat, you know, and he's just watching from the shore and going, (laughs) I'm teaching you guys something, mate. I, I do think, I, I, I think in some of this with Jesus, there is a bit of whimsy, even in the things that he says. So which leads us to our third word, instruction, verses 4 through 6. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, nope. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they fished all night. There's a guy on the shore at daybreak. And he says, children, he has to, we know they're 100 yards from the shore. We read that at least. So he has to yell, hey, children. And, and, and probably it's more like, boys, hey, guys, catch anything? How's that fishing going for you? 
And, and at this point, I, I think they think this is just some guy on the shore making fishing talk. And then Jesus says, here, let me help you. Just cast your net on the right side. And it's hard to believe that at this point their memory isn't starting to be jogged because we know that this happened once before when they were called to be disciples. It has to sound familiar. John or somebody has to be waking up to the fact that, okay, this is not a stranger. So they cast it and they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. Word number four, recognition. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but they were a hundred yards off. So John is the thinker, and Peter is the doer. And we're seeing this over and over again. John recognizes Jesus, and Peter jumps in the water. He grabs his clothes and jumps in the water. The text says he threw himself into the sea. By the way... This doesn't mean that Peter was fishing naked. Uh, most likely he had a, an outer garment, but there were his like looser undergarments that would have been tucked up. The outer garment would have been an encumbrance for the work that he had to do to fish. So he's got his outer garment off. It is interesting to me that he puts his clothes on before jumping in the water. That seems like normally we do that the other way around. So Peter, in this spontaneous act, leaves the, the rest of the disciples to, to get the boat in by themselves. And once again, I just want to point out here the diversity among Jesus' followers. We saw this at the empty tomb where John stopped at the door, but Peter rushed inside. There are thinkers and there are doers. There are some of us in this room who are quick to offer counsel. And there are some of us in this room who are slow and would prefer to think. There are some of us who are always saying, slow down. And there are some of us who are always saying, could you please pick up the pace? There are people who want to stop at every single thing written in a museum and read it all. And then there are people like myself who want to, like, get the gist of it and move on. And very different experience in the museum. We need different types of people in the body of Christ. We need the thinkers and we need the actors. We need the plotters. We need the pushers. But don't be demanding that everybody be just like you. So Peter and John are very different in how they respond to Jesus on more than one occasion. And that's okay. Number five, preparation. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. These four verses are incredibly specific. And, and I think they can only be explained by an eyewitness. There's a charcoal fire. Why, why a charcoal fire? 153 fish. That is so specific. You guys, people want to make so much about the 153 fish. I, I wrote some of these down just because this, all right, talk about spiritualizing the text. Is it possible that 153 fish could just mean 153 fish? Well, an ancient writer named Jerome said that there are 153 varieties of fish in the world, and this signifies all the tribes and languages to which the gospel must go. I, there's got to be more than 153 varieties of fish. A scholar named Emerton, this was a funny one to me, has pointed out that the num that, that I'm, I'm really sorry Greg is not here today. I, 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 really, I was going to do this for Greg. Uh, the, the, has pointed out that 153 is the sum of the numbers 1 through 17. 
So if you add the numbers 1 through 17, that makes 153, which makes it a triangular number, whatever that means, and therefore it represents all of the places that preachers uh, of the gospel are to spread their nets. That was a direct quote. I have no idea what that means. It probably means something to math people. 1, 5, and 3 are all prime numbers. Hmm. Again, sometimes the nails are just there to hold up the tabernacle. And most likely, you're just talking about fishermen who knew exactly how much they caught. You know, when I first started playing golf when I was in high school, you know, and like you're tempted to like drop a shot every now and then, it quickly became apparent to me that like everybody knows exactly what everybody has hit. Like I, I'm counting the other guys. I know what they've hit. If I'm going to lie about my score, the only person I'm lying to is me because everybody else knows what I got on that hole. And, and, and so a fisherman, he, he knows how many, you know, the guy I talked to this week about fishing, you know, he said, he said, there's no way I would ever say 153 fish. He, he said, I would say, he said, we'd probably say I caught about 200, you know. You wouldn't say exactly 153. So don't let silly speculation distract you from what's going on here. Jesus knows exactly what they need after a night of fishing. What do they need? They need breakfast, and he prepares breakfast. I didn't mean to have a breakfast theme going on these last two weeks, by the way. I, I kind of, that, that one snuck up on me. But isn't there just something really comforting about breakfast? Uh, when, when, uh, when Erica and I flew to Hong Kong, uh, 17 and a half, 18 hour flight on one of our adoption trips, and uh, I remember we got in there late at night, and you're so tired, and you just fall into bed. It's such a strange place. And, and I'm just, I, I don't know why, but I just remember the next morning we got up, and the hotel had a, a breakfast, and it was a lot of things that I'd never even considered having for breakfast, um, a lot of different animals and things that, you know, you don't even normally eat at all, much less for breakfast. But I, I just remember, like, a, a, cup, a cup of coffee and breakfast. Like, it's like, okay, I can do this. I, I can and we all know, tell me that you don't know, that there's a lot of tough love in following Jesus. There's a ton of tough love in following Jesus. And there's all that talk of pruning and discipline. And it's true. It's real. But Jesus isn't all no pain, no gain. He knows what we need, and he wants to give us good things. He wants to take care of us. He wants to provide comfort. It's like I said at the end of last week, wherever Jesus is, that is home. Wherever Jesus is, that's where we should want to be. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And sometimes fullness of joy is just that Jesus provides what we need. Jesus isn't trying to make your life worse. I promise you, it's our sin that causes us to think so. In John 15, 11, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that your joy may be made full. Also picking up from last week, notice the uneasiness that is still strong in the disciples. Uh, he says, now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. None of them dared ask. None of them said, Lord, is it really you? Is it really you? At some level, it all seems crazy. Once again, we see the intersection between the natural and the supernatural the risen Lord and these poor, scared, embarrassed disciples. And it's the same as when I can feel awed by the goodness of God one minute and ashamed to show him my face. It's not Jesus, it's them. It's not Jesus, it's me. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
And if you feel uncomfortable coming to Jesus this morning, I just want to tell you that that discomfort is entirely on your side. There is nothing from Jesus saying, stay back from me. There's nothing from Jesus saying, you've gone too far, you've done too much. If you're holding back from Jesus in fear or shame, you just need to know that it's the same Jesus who was waiting on the beach with breakfast for his faltering disciples. And then finally, provision. And we'll We'll have an opportunity to think about this in just a minute as we turn to the Lord's table. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Jesus invites us, and Jesus comes and serves. He takes the bread, and he gave it to them. He gives them what they need. I'm going to just kind of skip over 13 there. We'll have a moment to think about that in relation to the Lord's table. This is where I just want to lay out what I said to you earlier, just briefly. If, if there was a spiritual understanding of this passage, and this is not something that we normally engage in here, but I think this is an interesting picture to convey. Let me just present to you something that could be a picture that's going on here. Number one, Christ appears to them as they are fishing. So they're doing the work that is the picture of what they are supposed to be, fishers of men. Secondly, apart from Christ's presence, they have no success. Even though they're experienced fishermen, they catch nothing. Uh, apart from Christ, if we seek to be fishers of men apart from Christ, we can't do it. We're just casting our net and we're not catching anything. Number three, then Christ comes and he gives the command and they obey and they are met with overwhelming success. As, as they just throw the net on the other side, suddenly the harvest comes in. And I believe that we too can expect that our, fruit, our, our work will bear fruit when we do Christ's work the way that Christ has commanded us. Number four, Christ is on the shore waiting with a meal prepared. When Christ returns, we can expect that the great marriage supper of the Lamb is going to take place, and that when he welcomes us home, he's going to provide a feast for us. He's going to provide food for us, and it will feel like home. Number five, the disciples are on the sea. Jesus is watching from the shore. In this age, we work while Jesus watches and directs us. And then finally, Christ appears on the shore when the morning breaks. This could point us to the Lord's coming again. Paul says in Romans 13, 12, the night is far gone but the day is at hand. When the morning dawns, Christ will appear. I would never dogmatically assert that that is the meaning of this passage, but I don't think it would be helpful for us to speculate. We don't need to get into why Jesus started a charcoal fire, but I have found it helpful to think about those things and an encouragement to me this week as I've thought about that picture of Christ on the beach. Next week, we will turn to the restoration of Peter, which is one of probably one of the most well-known uh, and, and one of the most uh, intriguing passages in the Bible. Um, so we'll, we'll leave them here today uh, on the beach, and we will pick up with, with Jesus' words to Peter next week. And as the, uh, Tony, you can come on up here. I just, I just want to leave you as Tony comes up, and he's going to lead us in taking the, the table this morning. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with fish. And I, I just want us to keep that in mind as we turn to the Lord's table and what God has provided to us, the way that Jesus invites us, and then the way that Jesus serves us exactly what we need.